And those are powerful words, aren't they? So will I, so will I, so will I. It's my prayer for all of us this morning. Uh, we're in the second week of this four-week series entitled, There's Nothing Like Sex. And as I said last week, we can all agree that's true. Uh, we can all agree there's nothing like sex because it's the one and only way that new people are created. And that means there's nothing else like it. And I think we can all agree there's nothing like sex also because on a more surface level, nothing feels better, looks better, excites us more, uh, is more fun, adventurous, intrigues people more than sex. But, but the main reason there's nothing like sex is because nothing impacts like sex. And we, and we know this to, to be true, I think entirely based on observation and experience. I mean, you, you've seen it, that nothing in the world has positively or negatively impacted families, marriages, community, relational intimacy, identities, education, than like sex. Now, nothing consumes and tempts and drives people like sex. On, on a negative side, no, nothing has divided our country, families, churches, communities, like sex has. But the reality is, is the ultimate reason there's nothing like sex is because nothing impacts you and me like sex does. And why? Well, it's because creator God created it that way. God created sex. I mean, he made the fire. He brought the wood and the kerosene and the matches and he poured the kerosene all over the, the wood. And just as he's getting ready to light, he goes, wait till you see this. This is going to blow your mind, baby. You know, and he throws it on and boom. And this fire, this fire is good, and this fire is wonderful, and this fire is powerful. But just like real fire, what's so great can become destructive. I mean, when a forest fire happens, fire's not the problem. The location of the fire is. There, there's nothing like sex because nothing impacts like sex. This fire positively impacts us like nothing else within, when it's within creator's God-created intent for it. But outside of God's created intent for it, it becomes an, an extraordinarily destructive forest fire. We discovered last week the reason nothing impacts us like sex is because sex is not just a physical thing. It's a soul thing. I mean, sex is not just a pastime. It, it's a pathway to you and my soul, and it impacts our soul positively and neg negatively like nothing else can and nothing else does. Sex links the physical to the non-physical part of you. It, it, sex bridges body and soul. There's a connection between our sexual behavior and our souls, both positively and negatively. And why? Because once again, creator God created it that way. Now, I think we all intuitively know that sex is not just a physical thing, that it's a soul thing. But we don't treat it that way. I mean, we live in a culture that treats it like it's simple, surface, like it's no big deal because it's just physical. And we don't need, we, you know, we don't need to dive too deeply into the subject to know that that's a lie. We don't need to dive, you know, we don't need to look, to, need to look too far to, to know that the truth is sex is not just physical. It's physical, but not just physical. It positively and negatively touches us at the deepest level of our being. Now, any act of sex outside of creator God's created intent for it is described by the writers of Scripture as sexual immorality. And we discovered last week that according to the writers of Scripture, sexual immorality is extraordinarily destructive because it negatively impacts our souls. It negatively impacts who we are in a way that no other sin does. And that's why God says flee from it. Like flee from sexual immorality. Not because I'm against sex. I'm, I'm for sex. Like I created it. I created it to be so good. Flee from sexual immorality because I love you and I'm for you. 
See, sexual immorality, it's not unforgivable, but it can make our life unbearable. Sexual immorality won't send you to hell, but it has the potential to make your life hell on earth. If you let this fire out of the pit, it has the power to destroy you. There's no category like of sin like sexual sin because it impacts you like no other sin can and no other sin does. And that's why we have to talk about it. And that's why we're doing this series. And by the way, if you missed week one, I'd encourage you to go back and watch the first week of this series because it's going to make what we talk about today so much more impactful and so much more clear. Now, last week I presented two questions that I left unanswered. The first question was, what is sexual immorality? Meaning, what acts of sex are are outside of creator God's created intent for it? Which leads to the second question I left unanswered last week, what is creator God's created intent for sex? I'm going to answer both of those questions today, but first I have to present another question, which is, who did God create sex for? Is sex for people who are physically able For people who are in love, for consenting people, for people who crave it, for young people, for old people, for married people, for single people, for everybody. See, the answers to the second question, what is creator God's creating intent for sex, uh, dictates the answer to this question. So I'm going to attempt to answer all three of these questions today based on what I believe to be truth that God has communicated through the writers of Scripture. And just to let you know up front, there's a few challenges in doing this today. The first challenge is I have a very short amount of time. I mean, there has been entire doctrinal books and there's entire, you know, Bible college classes and, a bunch, you know, on this subject. And I'm trying to do it in under 30 minutes. And so I'm giving a very broad stroke. I'm not going to be able to answer any questions or dive into, you know, deep into any one particular thing. Second challenge with this today is some of you don't believe what is written in the Bible is truth. And if that's you, I just want to let you know I am so glad you're here. I'm actually super humbled you keep coming back. Like, thank you for, for keeping coming back. And I want you to know that I am not going to try to talk you into what is written, into the, what is written in the Bible is truth today. All I'm going to say today is that there is a truth to everything. You don't actually have a problem accepting that in some areas of life. You don't have a problem accepting that in math. You know, two plus two is four. No one goes, if you think it's five, it's not five, it's four. You don't have accepting that there's a truth to everything when it comes to physics or when it comes to gravity. But then there's some areas that we have a hard time accepting there's a truth to everything. This is one of those areas. And so my question for you, for those of you who like the Bible, what's written in the Bible isn't truth, I just would ask you, well, who determines what's true and what's false for you? Like, what determines what's true and what's false for you, particularly in this subject? Is it you? Is it culture? Or is it someone else? I mean, those questions will affect every single thing in your life. The the third challenge with doing this this sermon is we all read the Bible we want to read. We all read the Bible we want to read. You have come to some conclusions about some things in life. And in those conclusions on your things in life, you interpret Scripture and how you read Scripture through the lens of your background, through the lens of your upbringing, through the lens of your color, through the lens of your social economic status, through the lens of your culture, through the lens of us living in the 21st century. And so then when you, it, it's a, someone you've concluded and you, you, you look for verses to support your conclusions and verses that don't support your conclusions, you so often just explain away like this is why it doesn't happen and you do biblical hula hoops. We all do it. So it's difficult to read scripture. When this happens, it's difficult to read scripture with an open mind and open heart because, when, because we've already concluded what truth is. So as I go through this, you're going to be attempted to agree if 
you know, agree with me if it supports what I say supports what, what you've concluded, and you're going to disagree with me is what, if what I say doesn't support what you have concluded. As a matter of fact, I said this last week, some of you are already just waiting in a defensive position. And if I disagree with you, you know, you're going to get all emotional right now. You're going to want to walk out. You're not going to come back, and you're going to want to write me an email this week. And just to save you some time, I've already written the emails for you. I'm going to read them. Just so y'all don't want you to have to waste your time. So here's the emails. First one, I'm going to get one of two emails. First one, Ronnie, you don't take the truths of the Bible seriously and you preach heresy. How can you even live with yourself and call yourself a pastor? I'll be leaving relevant to find a church that preaches the Bible. For those of you that are getting ready to write that this week, you're welcome. I've already written it for you. Here's the second one I will write for you so you don't have to worry about it. Ronnie, you are closed-minded, unloving, and unaccepting. Jesus said not to judge anyone. How can you even call yourself a pastor? I will be leaving relevant to find a church that loves and accepts people. And there's the two emails that I'll get this week. So just so you didn't have to write it, I'll write them for you. Now what's interesting is I, get those two, I will get those two emails preaching the exact same sermon. Which means we all read the Bible we want to read. You need to know today, my goal is not to make you agree with me. My goal is to communicate what I believe to be God's truth and then allow you to wrestle with it. Maybe my answers to these three questions are wrong. They might be. I've wrestled with this for a long, long time. And I hope you do the same after today. My only ask of you is that you go into this for the next few minutes with an open heart and an open mind. And you hang with me all the way to the end. If you get to the end and you disagree with me, I just want to encourage you to ask why. Is it that you disagree with me because it's not truth or that you don't like it? And I just encourage you to ask God, you don't have to ask me, God, what's your truth? You have the ability to pick up the same Bible I do and study in the same way I have over all these years. Pick up God, what's your truth? If you end up coming to a different conclusion than I do, an entirely different conclusion and living different and all that stuff, I just want you to know right up front, I love you, we love you, and God loves you. You don't have to agree with anything I'm saying to be loved here and to be a part of Relevant. If you live differently, it's okay. Like, you can still be engaged in our church body. You're just going to know, like, hey, this is what Relevant believes to be truth. This is what they're going to be teaching, but it has nothing to do with am I loved? Can I engage here? Now, I'm going to attempt to answer these questions by quickly going through three different sections of Scripture. Uh, to, to, begin, to begin answering these questions, though, I have to go all the way back to the creation account found in the book of Genesis, the first book of our Bible. Now, Genesis 1, in Genesis 1, God is in the midst of creating everything. And on the sixth day, we read that he reaches the climax of his creation when he creates human beings. And here's how the writer of Genesis describes it. Genesis 1:27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, two important things to take note of in order to answer the questions that we're attempting to answer today from this one little short verse. The first thing to take note of is that according to the writer of Genesis, God is the creator of humanity and he stamped both male and female with his divine imprint. Creator God created humanity in his perfect image. And you got to know, we did bear his perfect image like he created us to until what is called the fall. And the fall is when sin entered, it entered into this world through humanity's choice to sin. You actually can read about that all in Genesis 3. 
Humanity's choice to sin was a direct violation against Holy Creator God, His created will for us, and His created intent for us. Sin, it, dis- it ended up distorting who we are and who God created us to be. So that's the first thing we know. Second thing we notice right up in, the, in this verse is that sex difference, the difference between male and female, is woven into the fabric of creation. Now, this is interesting. In, if you read through Genesis 1, what you're going to notice, there's a beautiful display of creational differences coming together in perfect harmony and comp- complementing each other in perfect, uh, perfect unity. You have heaven and earth, land and sea, evening and morning, day and night, at the climax of creation, male and female. Genesis 1, you got to know, this is kind of a, a general summary of what God created. And in Genesis 2, it describes in more detail how God created humanity. In Genesis 2, the writer of Genesis tells us the first human God created was a man whom he names Adam. And after he created Adam, he makes a place called the Garden of Eden his home and tells Adam his purpose. He says, Adam, your purpose, your, my created purpose for you is to glorify me by doing my will and my work. Well, immediately, Adam gets to work, but as he does, God notices something just isn't right. Genesis 2, 18. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. So, God sees Adam working by himself and said, this ain't good. He needs an intimate companion to help do my work. Well, according to the writer of Genesis, as God brought every animal to Adam, none of them were found to be that suitable helper. So God decides, all right, I'm going to create something new. Now, you, you notice two things God says is going to be true about what he makes or what he creates next. First, it'll be a helper. Now, the Hebrew scriptures that we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures were originally written in Hebrew. The Hebrew word translated helper in English is the word ezer. Throughout the Old Testament, the, the, this word is most often applied to God's actions toward the nation of Israel. God is described many times as Israel's helper or is, uh, Israel's ezer. So this word, it doesn't imply inferiority. It doesn't imply weakness. Well, the other thing you notice is what God creates next will not just be a helper, but will be a suitable one. The, the Hebrew word translated suitable here in English is konegdo. Konegdo uh, is only used here it, there's used nowhere else in the entire Old Testament. It's only used here in Genesis 2. And the word konegdo, it's a very difficult word to, trans, word to translate to English since it's a compound word make, made up of K, which means like or similar or sameness, and the word neged, which means opposite or dissimilar or different. So it's a combination of these two different Hebrew words that mean sameness and difference. It, it, together the word means something like as opposite him or like against him. It's, it's a complex word that captures how what God creates next can qualify as the perfect helper for Adam. And here's what God creates and here's how God creates it. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man, Adam, to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman, who we later find out is named Eve, from the rib he had taken out of man and brought her to the man. Now, to Adam's surprise, God didn't create a what? He created another someone. And as you can imagine, the moment Adam lays his eyes on Eve, he's just taken back by her beauty. It's like he goes, well done, nice job, nailed it, you know. And this is what he says next. The man said, 
This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman for she was taken out of man. Saying, God, she's definitely a suitable helper. But what makes her connecto? What makes her connecto? What makes her suitable? It's that she is like or she is similar to Adam in that she is human and that she is different and she is opposite in Adam in her femaleness or in her sexual difference. Now, in, in the next sentence, the writer transitions from talking specifically about how God created the male and female to his created design for marriage. Here's what, here's what the writer says. This is why man leaves his father and mother and is united. And this word united, it's a sense of a permanent binding together. Something stronger than cement or stronger than glue. A, a permanent binding together. A, a husband leave his father and mother, man leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And they will become one flesh. In this verse, Adam and Eve's marriage is given universal application. Now, if everything that I just explained is true, that means, according to the writer of Genesis at least, creator God's created design for marriage is to be between one man and one woman. It's to unite, a permanent uniting, one of one man and one woman as one with the purpose of glorifying him. It's to create an indissoluble bond between one man and one woman that can't be separated, that can't be unwound. Now, listen, I get the pushback. I get that's a narrow-minded view. That's may have all started, but, you know, things have changed. And you might be right. One way to tell if, if, if you're right is, is by looking at what Jesus himself had to say. That, that leads us to the second passage I want to look at today. And this is the New Testament book of Matthew. The, the setting of Matthew is in the first century. So it's a few thousand years after Genesis was written. Ma Matthew is actually a document written by Matthew, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, one of Jesus', you know, his team, his crew. It was written by Matthew. And Matthew is documenting the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. In Matthew 19, Jesus is confronting the Jewish religious leaders about their lenient view of divorce. And in the middle of that conversation, Jesus says this. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. So Jesus starts his argument about marriage by reaching all the way back to Genesis 1.27, reminding them that sex difference, the difference between male and female, is woven into the fabric of creation by creator God. And then Jesus does something weird. He immediately fast-forwards an entire chapter in Genesis 2 and quotes Genesis 2.24. He said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united, permanent binding together, to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And Jesus' argument about marriage, he's reiterating what we just discovered as we went through Genesis. That creator God created marriage to be between one man and one woman. And that creator God's, uh, and that creator God's design for marriage is to unite, to create an indissoluble bond between one, married, one, one man and one woman that can't be separated, that can't be unwound. Now, is that truth? Well, Jesus thought it was true. And as I said a million times before, any guy who can predict his death and resurrection and pull it off, I kind of just go with whatever that guy says. Now, once again, I get the pushback with this. That may have been true for Jesus in the 21st century, or in the first century, but this is the 21st century. 
I mean, things have changed. Things have progressed. And once again, you might be right. Or is it possible that we might be trying to recreate Jesus to fit into our 21st century Western culture? I don't know. You can answer that. Now, the question still remains. How is this uniting created? How is this indissoluble bond created? Is it just because two people say, I do, or that they signed a marriage license? Well, that leads to the third and final passage I want to look at today. A passage we actually looked at last week in 1 Corinthians 6. Once again, just to remind you, 1 Corinthians is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul about 20 years or so after Jesus' life to the church, the community of people who had put their faith in Jesus in the city of Corinth. you got to remember, Paul is not some narrow-minded religious guy. He's the guy that Jesus called to bring the truth about the good news of salvation that Jesus offered through his death and resurrection into this broken world. The, the truth about, about following Jesus into this broken world. Jesus called him to bring the truth about, about creator God's created intent for us into this broken world. And here's what Paul wrote. Do you not know? He says this because maybe they didn't know like we don't know. Do you not know that he who, and here's this word again, unites himself with a prostitute, which is another way of saying has sex with a prostitute, is one with her in body, for it is said, and then he quotes what the writer of Genesis wrote in Genesis 2 and what Jesus reiterated in Matthew 19. The two will become one flesh. And their response is like, no one's getting married. Like, no one's uniting. Like, we're just having sex. Like, no one's becoming one with everyone. Anyone worse having sex. And Paul's going, you obviously do not understand sex. There's a uniting, there's a permanence, there's a becoming one that happens when you have sex. See, Paul is clearly communicating the point that the writer of Genesis and Jesus, uh, and that Jesus alluded to, and that Jesus implied that the act of sex, that the act of sex creates an indissoluble bond between two people. Based on these three passages, we can begin answering our questions, according to the writer of Genesis, according to Jesus, according to Paul, God created marriage to be between one man and one woman, and God's created intent for sex is to be within the context of marriage. God created marriage for one man and one woman to, to permanently unite as one, and he designed sex to create that indissoluble bond. Now because of that, here's what Paul says. Flee, run, get as far away from as possible. Free, flee from, not sex, it isn't bad, it's great. God created it to be great, it's awesome. But from sexual immorality. So what's sexual immorality? Well, according to Jesus, according to Paul, sexual immorality is any act of sex outside of God's created design for marriage. Any act of sex before, outside of, in addition to or after the marriage of one man and one woman. Because God created marriage for one, one man and one woman to permanently unite as one. And he designed sex to create that indissoluble bond. Now, I don't know where to say that, but I'm, I just felt like I need to say this right here. If that's all true, if that's all true, 
I want to quickly say some, something to, to those of you who have same-sex attraction. Your same-sex attraction is not sexual immorality. I know when you read this from Paul, then, it's so easy to feel defeated because how, you're like, how can I flee from how I feel? If you have same-sex attraction, you need to know that God, your heavenly Father, loves you. Your same-sex attraction does not prevent you putting your faith in Jesus, and it does not prevent you from being a follower of Jesus. For many of you, your same-sex attraction, it's not your choice. And for those of you who keep saying that it's their choice, come back next week. I'm going to talk specifically to you. However, just like everyone else, your sexual behavior is your choice. According to Jesus, according to Paul, for all of us, sexual immorality is any act of sex outside of God's created design for marriage. So Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. And here's why. All, all other sins a person commits, meaning every other category of sin, regardless of how big or small, are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually, he's saying it's a category all its own because nothing impacts like sex. Whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Paul's saying sexual immorality is like no other sin. Not because it's worse than any other sin. It's not worse. Sin is sin. Jesus had to die for all of it. He's saying sexual immorality is like no other sin, not because God hates it more, not because God's going to judge you more harshly, not because God won't forgive you. He's saying sexual immorality is like no other sin because it impacts you like no other sin. It's the only sin a person commits against their own body. When we sin sexually, we talked about this last week and what we just saw through these three, three different passages. We create an indissoluble bond with another that God intended to be created within the context of marriage between one man and one woman. That's why this sin impacts us in a way that no other sin does. Once again, nothing impacts us like sex because sex is not just a physical thing. It's a soul thing. It hurts us at the deepest level imaginable, at the core of who we are, at our soul. Sexual immorality is extraordinarily destructive because it impacts our souls. It impacts who we are in a way that no other sin does. Our souls, our souls were created by creator God to relate intimately with him. And according to Paul, somehow, and Paul doesn't explain the somehow, sexual immorality creates an indissoluble bond with another that negatively impacts our soul's ability to experience the intimacy with God that he created us for. That, that, dra that, that drastically affects our soul's ability to fully know and interact with God. That destroys our soul's ability to relate to God the way we were created to and the way that we desire to. And I believe that is truth, absolute truth, not because, not only just because I read it in the Bible, but because my past is littered with sexual immorality and it destroyed my soul for so long. You've got to know, sexual immorality, it doesn't impact your salvation. No act of sexual sin keeps us out of a relationship with a saving relationship with Jesus or takes us out of a saving relationship with Jesus. We are saved by God's grace through our faith in Jesus alone. 
We are saved and we are redeemed and we are restored. By, but because of God's grace, the moment we put our faith in Jesus, the moment we ask Jesus to be the forgiver of our sins, the leader of our life, alone. And no sin prevents that and no sin can take us out of that. So sexual immorality doesn't impact our salvation. But it does impact our transformation. Sexual immorality does impact us being transformed more into everything God created us to be because of what this unique sin does to our souls. And it doesn't matter what the sexual sin is. Sexual immorality is sexual immorality. No act of sexual immorality is worse than any others, even though some people try to categorize them, try to justify them, try to dismiss some, or try to look down on some as worse than others. Sexual immorality is sexual immorality across the board. There's no categories here. Every act of sexual immorality impacts our soul's ability to experience God and impacts our soul's ability to be transformed and more into everything he's created us to be. And that's why our heavenly father who loves us says through Paul, flee, flee, run, get as far away from this as humanly possible. So, Recap, let's look at these three passages. What's creator God's created intent for sex? Well, according to the writers of Genesis and according to Jesus, God created sex to be between one man and one woman, and God's created intent for sex is to be within the context of marriage. Second question, what is sexual immorality? Well, according to Jesus, according to Paul, sexual immorality is any act, any, any act of sex outside of God's created design for marriage. A shorter way to say it is this. God created marriage, God created sex, God created sex for marriage, which answers the third question. Who is sex for? According to the writers of scripture, it's not for people who are physically able, it's not for people who are in love, it's not for consenting people, and it's not for everybody. The writers of scripture over and over and over and over say, who is sex for? One man, one woman for life. One man, one woman for life. And God would say, let that fire burn within my design. Throw the kerosene on it. Let it explode. But keep it there. Taking this fire outside of my design will create a forest fire of destruction in your soul. Now, that's what I believe to be the truth that God has communicated through the writers of Scripture. As I said before, my goal is to present what I believe to be God's truth and allow you to wrestle with it. Maybe my conclusions are wrong. They could be. I know I've spent many, many years, 20 plus years, studying and seeking God's truth on this. I know that myself and the elders and pastors over the last year uh, spent an enormous amount of time studying and seeking God's truth on this together. If you disagree with my conclusions, that's okay. But at least I hope that you choose to do the same studying with the same determination and the same intensity that I've done it. I would hope that you would choose to do that. Now, I know that some of you who disagree are going to end up asking, is relevant for me? Is relevant for me? Can I be loved here? Can I be long here? Can I be honest about who I am here? Is this a safe place to share my desires, my setbacks, my feelings? Can I engage here? 
I'm going to tell you straight up, my biggest fear in preaching this message today is that any of those silly questions would ever enter your mind. If any of those questions are on your mind right now, I would ask that you please come back next week for part three. But let me just reiterate what I said before. I love you. We love you. And more importantly than that, your heavenly father loves you. You don't have to agree with any of this to be loved here or to be a part of relevant. You can choose to live 100% differently than this. And it doesn't change anything between me and you. You don't have to answer to me for this. I could be wrong. That's why I want you to seek God's truth. If you think I'm wrong, seek God's truth on this. Now, for those of you who are followers of Christ, who'd say you put your faith in Jesus, you've asked him to be the forgiver of your sins and leader of your life, Paul closes this section of 1 Corinthians by reminding us who we are and how to follow Jesus when it comes to our sexual behavior. For those of you who are not followers of Christ, you never put your faith in Jesus, you don't have to apply what Paul says next. But let me just tell you, you can even if you don't agree with it, even if you don't believe it's all true. If you apply what Paul says next, you have to know it's not going to save you. Like, we're, we're forgiven for our violation of sin against God. We're given eternal life when we put our faith in Jesus, when we ask Jesus to be the forgiver of our sin and leader of our life. We're saved by great, God's grace through our faith in Jesus alone, nothing else. So applying this, if you're not a follower of Christ, applying this is not going to save you, but it may save you from a lot of pain and a lot of hardship and a lot of regret in the future. Here's what Paul says. Here's how he closes. Do you not know, we read this last week, that your bodies, remember he's writing to followers of Christ, that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. He's saying, remember, the moment that we put our faith in Jesus, asking him to be the forgiver of our sins and leader of our life, God's spirit took residence in you. Remember, he now resides in you. Remember, you are his holy temple. It's who you are. He says, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. Remember that all of you belongs to God because the forgiveness of your sin, your salvation, you being reconciled to your heavenly father, you being given eternal life has been bought and purchased and redeemed to the price. And the price was Jesus' sacrifice. The price was Jesus shed blood for you on the cross. He said, therefore, and here's his conclusion, conclusion and application of that, honor God with your bodies. As a follower of Christ, the standard for our sexual behavior should be to honor God. To go from I will do what feels right and what feels good to me to God, I will honor you in all that I do. God created marriage. He created sex. And he created sex for marriage. For those of you who would say you're followers of Christ, let me ask you a question now. and wrapping this all up. Are you honoring God with your body? If everything I just said is true, this is a yes or no question. Are you honoring God with your body? Regardless of your answer to the question is what it is right now, here's kind of the follow-up question is, are you willing to? For those of you who would say you're followers of Christ who are married, who are divorced, who are gay, who are straight, who are transgender, who are teenagers, who are old farts like me, are you honoring God with your body? Are you willing to? For those who say that you're followers of Christ but you aren't willing to, this is an area of your life that keeps you from following Jesus. Which means God's not being glorified in this area and it's preventing you from being transformed to everything he's created you to be. 
I know Jesus is prompting you to follow him in this area of your life. And he's doing it for one reason. He freaking loves you. He proved that by dying for you. He knows what's better for you and me than we know for ourselves. The question is, will you follow? Will you follow? For those who are willing to follow Jesus, by honoring God with your body, regardless of the past or your present sexual choices, I encourage you to pray over the next few weeks, God, what does it look like to honor you with my body? God, what does it look like to honor you with my body? If you pray this, I bet you he answers. I actually bet you he answers pretty quick. And when he does, you're going to be faced with a choice. Will you do what feels right and good to me? Or Jesus, will I choose to trust and surrender to you? And that's what we're going to talk about in week four of this series. But let me just say now, I hope you choose to trust and surrender. For those of you who do, you're going to avoid your soul from being unnecessarily wounded in the future. Real quick, to those of you who are followers of Christ, who have sexual sin in your past or, or currently right now, what you need to know is that you're forgiven. You're forgiven. You are forgiven for all of your sins. The moment you put your faith in Christ, you were forgiven. So regardless of what the past is, even what the present is right now, you got to let go of that shame. you got to let go of that guilt. you got to begin asking God, what does it look like to honor you with my body going forward? And then choosing to trust and surrender to him. If you do, you'll begin to experience healing in your wounded soul because that's a transforming work that Jesus does when we take next steps to follow him. Let me say one more thing before I close to one more group of people. Dance, you know, throughout this sermon, said, so who's sex for? I've been talking a lot about that. But I think a more important question is who's salvation for? And the answer to that question is, it's for you. It's for me. Like, regardless of what sin is in your life and my life, who is salvation for? Who is, did Jesus come and die and rise on the cross, die on the cross and rise from the grave to offer forgiveness for sin, to offer eternal life? Who did he offer that to? And the answer is you. Jesus came to offer you that and me that. And if you've never accepted it, I'm not going to, so it wasn't even really a gospel presentation today. I just want to give an opportunity as I close in prayer here in a second. If something's stirring you to say, I want that. I want that that you can accept that gift today because that is definitely for you. Let me pray. God, I pray that uh, um, regardless of where we're at, we all just ask the question, am I honoring you with my body? Am I willing to? And what does it look like? And we choose to take next steps to do that. I pray we choose to do it for your glory. I pray we choose to do it for ourselves. God, I pray that you bring healing to people's souls who need that. You protect in the future from those of us who choose to do that. Um, 
God, I pray no one walks out of here with any guilt and any shame and any condemnation that they walk out of here just going, man, God, you love me enough to allow me to be in that room today. And I feel loved by you. God, for any person who's never put their faith in Jesus, in, in you, Jesus, in this moment, if they're feeling a prompting to do that, whether they're at home on their couch or they're in this room, I pray they do that, that right now, Jesus. They say they need a savior, they need saved for their violation of sin against, against you, holy God, creator God. And they believe, they pray right now that Jesus, they believe you are that savior because of your death and resurrection. And in this moment, they ask you to be the forgiver of their sin and the leader of their life. God, I pray in this moment, your spirit takes residence within them. You give them an assurance of your love for them, of your salvation, of your eternal security. You begin to prompt them to take next steps to follow you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.